We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Still to this day, I meet, I meet people that, that have been living in New York, Japanese people living here for 25 years, and they give me the same shit. They're like, it's so amazing what you've been able to do with Japanese culture, and that you could, that your palate's soup. And I'd be like, you know, go fuck yourself. You've been living here for 25, how about you? Ooh, it's so cool that you're a New Yorker. Like, how do you, can you ride the subway? When you eat a pretzel, how do you, how do you get it into your mouth? It must be very hard for you. What do you and, then, and then they get really insulted, and they're like, well, what are you saying to me? And I was like, the same shit you're saying to me. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Ivan Orkin is a chef, entrepreneur, and the man behind the legend of Ivan Ramen. He joins Matt in the studio to talk about all of that. Also on the show, later on, we'll be talking to Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman, playing a friendly game of F. Mary Kill. But first, Matt, what did you and Ivan talk about? What's going on with Ivan? Ivan Orkin... Ramen God, I bow down. It was an amazing conversation. I always love talking to Ivan. He takes me back to 2012 when he entered the New York City food media universe with this insanely popular pop-up at Momofuku Noodle Bar. I think all the every single blog covered it. It was a really big moment for him, and we talk all about that. We also talk about his ups and downs running restaurants in New York different types of ramen shops and different concepts and how it's kind of always a struggle to make it work in this really competitive city. He's also in the pizza game now, right? Very New York of him. Definitely. Ivan knows pizza. He's loved it for years and he has uh, his own slice shop. And we talk about what it's like to run a slice shop and also give some opinions about the $1 slice. Anna, the $1 slice, kind of in the news these days. Very controversial. Here's Matt talking to Ivan Orkin. Ivan Orkin, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. You're on a Pilates kick. I'm on a Pilates kick. Yes, Dude, you I look because awesome. I'm old. Well, I'm old. Unlike everybody else in this industry, I'm like I'm 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 on the other side of sixty. So but you're wearing a fitted shirt. And yeah, you're kind of rippling out of the shirt. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to try. You know, I have I have a nine year old, so I need to keep up with him, and I have a, a hundred plus employees, and I have a lot of things going on, so I need to be uh, healthy and. These days, if you're my age and you're not taking care of yourself, then you're stupid because there's all the evidence is in. I wanted to go back. Um, you had quite a following in Tokyo um, it, with your with your restaurants. Then you came to America right. and did this event at Momofuku Noodle right. Bar in right. 2012. I remember sitting at my desk uh, at another job and reading Eater or Grub Street or one of the one of the the blogs, and I remember seeing this guy and seeing this name and seeing a long fucking line at Noodle Bar lining up for your ramen. Yeah, like. That was a crazy couple of days. T- t- take us back to that because I, I want to hear about that. Well, time. that was cool. I mean, I, you know, when I first, I mean, now I have a bunch of restaurants and I'm, I got all these things going on. But when I came back to New York, I was just a guy. I mean, I had this, I had this, you know, this underground following. Uh, people kind of knew about me. And I, and I did the Lucky Peach uh, article, which so that's of, what, that was your that connection was, to that, was the, that was the entry into 
Yeah, there's the entry into New York a bit and into into the American cooking world. At least I got, you know, I was on the cover of this, what ended up being this wonderfully, you know, hot, cool magazine. And uh, um, and I was friends with a bunch of the people that were doing it. And uh, so, you know, uh, Peter Meehan called me and he said, I think you should do a pop-up at Momofuku. He goes, I'm going to set it up. And he did. And he called, made a few phone calls and, and it was it just got set up. And it was really fun. And, you know, this was back when... You know, like I said, I might not run the restaurants day to day anymore, but I mean, I still do these things. And that, at that time, I was making everything from scratch in my kitchen up in the up in the burbs and then schlepping it down, you know, and and and, you know, anytime I did an event, I did everything myself. And so I, I went to the kitchen and a few days before the pop up, we started prepping and and uh, I did most of the work and, you know, they helped me out with stuff. But I sort of I still knew what I wanted to do. And, and so and I was and it sold out right away. Right? Like right away it sold out and then you added a second. Well, night. we messed up because <laughs> we did, you know, I don't think they realized how many people would come and it just ended up being this. We didn't have enough, anything enough. Yeah. And uh, it was a real drag because all these people came and it was August and it was 95 degrees outside. Wait, that's right. It right. was August. It was, it was August. like the craziest. It was 95 thing. degrees. <laughs> the line went all the way around the block. Yeah. And I personally went and talked to every single person in line and apologized for running out of food and I invited everyone back. It was really endearing. Yeah. I remember, yeah. and I was, I got to get to know this guy. And and tell me what happened after that moment. Um, did, were people knocking on your door to open in New York? As well, as- I mean, I think no. And you know, it's the whole, this is the whole thing that's so funny about how one one sees someone like me because they'll be like, "Oh, well, damn I mean, people just must be, you know, begging you to do stuff." And I'm like, "Well, yes and no. I mean, people beg you to do stuff, but they don't they don't want to give you any money, or they say, "I'll do it for you," and now I own you. So anything you do, it's great because now I'm going to make all this money. And you're like, "Um, yeah, no, that doesn't sound good for me. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I want to do that." And um, I met a lot of people who wanted to work with me but, you know, wanted to really either control everything or let me keep, you know, a couple of percentage points or whatever. And, and uh, I've already known that I work better when I'm in control and, uh, um, and I'm not greedy. So I haven't, you know, I hope someday to, to say, you know, financially, oh, wow, you know, I ended up making a bunch of money doing that. That's so cool. But You're not you driven know, by that. I'm not driven. It. I'm not, not, not ult- I mean, I am because I think that, I don't think anybody should ever open a business that where they don't have a fantasy of making a lot of money. I, and they can they could say that all that money is going to go to charity and I'm going to live on a carpet in the middle of the, you know, a, 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 I don't know, whatever, in the woods. But I do think you have to have a drive to have a financially viable business. You ended up opening on Clinton Street where your restaurant remains. Yep. And that that neighborhood is an interesting spot to open because it, you've seen like waves of popularity and you've seen Brooklyn and you're you, but you're still on Clinton Street. What tell us about the restaurant? What's happening well, there? Clinton Street's a tough street. I Fuck mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. A, it's a beautiful. It's a. It's. I think it's one of the last real neighborhoods in New York. We're talking about the Lower East Side. Fuck right. yeah, it's tough. It's a really cool, unique little pocket there in well, Lower East Side. It's a pocket because you know f- to the east, it, it, the income level drops precipitously, and so it's it you know. Uh, those so those people don't go to the restaurants on Clinton Street because they don't have because I mean even though I I don't think my restaurant's particularly expensive you know asking someone who doesn't make a lot of money to spend thirty or forty dollars on a meal is a lot um, so you don't really have it doesn't speak to that part of the neighborhood uh, it's it doesn't speak to the Orchard Street you know Ludlow area where it's mostly drinking and it's very young and a lot of so you know I, I'm a real destination spot. Um, and we struggled. I mean, we, I worked really hard. There were there were there were times when when you know summers were very lean, 
and uh, uh, it's it, it's it's a it's hard, you know, having uh, even though I had a nice following uh, until the Netflix show. Um, you know, now we're, we've been blessed with a, a, a lot of. So you're now in all the tourist maps and because of Chef's Table, your episode, which is definitely one of my favorites, straight Thank up. You. Man, you're you. super honest in it. Um, people are coming to Clinton Street as a It's, it's so nice. That's, I mean, I have like big, big tears in my eyes. It's, people are so kind and they're so yeah. nice. And, you know, they, they're so excited. And I've always felt this way. I mean, even when back in Tokyo, you know, I'd have a two or three hour line every day. And I, I, I used to feel so guilty. And my guests, I'd be like, I'm so sorry, you have to wait in line. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? This is the best. We're so excited. And I'd be like, I know, but it's like two hours. You've been standing out here and it's freezing out. They'd be like, no, don't worry about it. But that's a different, that's a cultural difference. That's a cultural difference. The way that, um, that Japanese diners um, uh, appreciate uh, food in a way that's maybe sure. slightly different than it. Can you, can you t- tell me about that, like the difference in the diners? You, well, I mean, first of all... Ramen is obviously much more. It's 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 a much different food. I mean, ha- uh, it's much more like going to a really cool, simple hamburger shop or slice shop in America, in a way, because the the ramen is first of all the ramen shops. You know, Japan can be a very buttoned down type of you know uh, place. You know, very and ramen shops um, in Japan. You know, I, I see ramen as the, as the maverick cuisine of Japan. As a matter of fact, I would do interviews and I would refer to ramen as a cuisine, and I would get incredible pushback. They'd be like, "Well, it's not a cuisine. It's ramen. It's you know, it's crap." And I'd be like, "I'd be like, yeah, and it's really hard to make good ramen, though. I mean, there's a lot of really bad ramen, but the good ramen." Is really complex. People would and, say to you, look you in the eyes and say, "Ramen is crap." Sure. Well, I told when I told people that I was opening a ramen shop, people who knew me, they they said, "Wow, I'm so sorry to hear about your fall from grace." And I'd be like, they'd be like, "You worked at Lutes, right? You went to the CIA, right? Now you're having a ramen shop." I'm so sorry. What what happened? And <laughs> and you know, but but you know, but then again. 25 years ago, if Daniel Balut said, I'm going to open a hamburger chain, people would say, oh, wow, what's, I think he's a little crazy. What's wrong now? If he said it, people would be, they'd be like, oh, my God, this is awesome. The burger's going to be great. Yay. You know, so it's, it's, it's the, the worldview on street food and, and, and uh, comfort food has changed a lot. Um, and I think now ramen is, is, is the uber comfort food. It's all in that bowl. It's, it's a little bit messy. It's a, it's a little bit unhealthy. It's, or a lot. Mine's a little bit unhealthy. There's some that are a lot unhealthy. Um, it's really fun to eat. Kids love it. So you can bring your kids to it. It's, it's just a, it's such a nice, uh, type of, type of thing to eat, you know, which, uh, segues to news last fall, um, late last fall, uh, you uh, are expanding. Right. So Slurp Shop has been open in the Gotham West Market for a few years now. Right. Four years? Is that right? Uh, uh, Got- uh, Gotham Market opened uh, a little over five years ago. Five years ago you and, had Slurp yeah, Shop there. Ivan Ramen is uh, five years in May. Amazing. And you are uh, now opening what I believe is a franchise model for uh, the Slurp Shop and you're going to open well, it in the country. Well, not for the Slurp. We're, we're going to start with a prototype and probably I mean, I, I took the Slurp Shop much to a lot of people's chagrin because I was already planning to open the bigger one downtown. Uh, but I got a really good offer, and I thought, you know, what a cool way to be able to sort of experiment with this QSR model and see how it works. And, and the price of admission was something I could afford myself, so it's mine. And, uh, and I was really able to uh, learn a lot. Um, and at the same time, I've learned a lot downtown, and I, I love the service model down there very much. I love our beer program. Uh, I love the appetizers we've come up with, and um, our guests seem to have a really fun time down there. So I, I think that the going forward, 
And and as I said, you know, in 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 the in the articles that talk about what I'm doing, oh, and I'm going to take over the world. Well, I'm sure I'd like to, and I'd like to have ramen shops in every you know nook and corner of the of the world. Uh, I'm going to start off with one. Yeah, and, it's a good, good number to start off with. I I'll think. start off with one. I have. A, we're going to have a prototype, and we're yeah. going to play around with it. We are interested in the franchise model because it's uh, it allows it, it allows growth. Um, it, I mean, both ways, both ways, you know, company owned and opening a lot or, or franchise owned, there's, there's pros and cons to both models. Um, I've been convinced after doing a lot of research that, that, uh, I, I like the franchise model. So um, that's what we're going to move. So towards. what does, um, this new concept look like and what, what types of, uh, ramen styles will be serving? What else will be serving? I'm just really curious. Cause you know, I look at a world where sweet green is now a unicorn. It's worth a billion dollars and people right. just love sweet green. There's a lot right. to learn from that company. Right. Well, it also took them 11 years. It sure did. And yeah. you know what? You're here six years in the States. So it's not even like your baby compared to that. Right. Like just, I, but I'm really, Really, really excited to see what you do with this on a larger scale because I think your food is fucking awesome. Well, so thank you. I, I, you know, the good thing is that I've always, I've been in this business for for you know close to thirty years. I've seen a lot and I've done a lot. And uh, um, the way I set up this business from day one is that uh, all different types of systems and ways to keep the quality consistent. And so moving towards uh, having having multiples of, of what I'm already doing is kind of easy for me to think through because it's how I think already. So I always think in terms of, well, how could I, how could I make a lot of that? And, you know, rejecting certain dishes because we all agree that it's just too hard to reproduce well or, or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of, you know, we're, we're, we're chefy and yet there are certain times where we make ourselves pull back because it's, you know, too chefy is something that ends up being too difficult to reproduce. And, you know, to me, you know, I, I, I bumped into some guests the other day when I was at the at, at downtown and they talked about how they brought clients all the time and they were they were very kind and they said some really nice things and and I said to them you know I'm this is really important to me because you know you brought these people with you because you wanted to show off this restaurant you really enjoy and, and if the food tasted different than the last time you would have been really embarrassed and they would have said come on man this is crap why why'd you schlep us down here you know and so I, I take that as a huge challenge and a big responsibility to make sure that people are always tasting what they look forward not not just the new dishes but whatever someone falls in love with you wanted that to taste the same time same every time what type of ramen will you be serving, though? Like, what? Kind I think of- we're going to stick close to what we have. You know, we have the classics, which is the sh- the shio and the shoyu, which is which is the dishes that I I developed in Japan, and uh, I continue. I, they're still pretty different from most of the shops in the states at the moment. I mean, I think some are moving towards that, but I still think that the tonkotsu it's style still a king in New York. The tonko- and the tonkotsu is the king in Japan. I mean, it's yeah. I think rich, heavy, intense, you know, food is always going to be, you know, really popular. It's easy to understand. Uh, it's it's hits you in the face. Um I started making ramen when I was in my 40s, and um, I, I just, we used to, you know, it, before I ever even thought to make a ramen shop, you know, we would just drive around. It was right when the ramen boom was really kicking up, and we ate a lot. And I would just, you know, every time I ate the tonkotsu style, I just either felt flat out sick or very sleepy or bloated, like, you know, we eat at 11.30 in the morning, and by midnight, I'm still full. And I just, I just was like, you know, I can't eat this at this age. So let's talk about your shio because I think that's that's my favorite out of out of it. So what 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 makes great shio? I had shio up in Hokkaido last winter, and I I, I felt this broth is is make I feel great. I feel it's clean, it's pure. Right. What is your shio like? Well, I mean, mine is the same. I mean, to me, 
when I when I finally discovered the lighter style ramens after eating lots of the tonkotsu, I kind of was like, oh, all right, this is more my speed. I really like it. I also think that the shio is the biggest challenge. It's like it's you know it's like grilling a piece of fish perfectly and dressing it just so enough so that the fish flavors are enhanced, but it doesn't you know you still want to taste those delicate textures of the fish and the del- whatever. And I think shio ramen's the same. You want I I and I make I've always made my own noodles. Now I I have my recipe made for me, but it's still my noodle recipe that I developed and. I want the flavor of the noodles to shine through. I want the flavor of the broth to... I want the noodles in the broth to be the the stars of the bowl. And then the garnishes, to me, were always the things that sort of came along with that. But they, you know... But they're really soigné. They're really, like, pre- precise and yeah, perfect. Because like, a lot of ramen shops, you go and, you you know, the, the, the egg is really salty and sweet. And the meat is really intense and, and, and has lots of tare on it. And, and it's so rich that the whole thing just sort of co- becomes this glob of sort of salt and fat and and that's that's and I, you know what like I said, I'm very cautious to never I don't criticize other people's food because I, I think especially if it's something that's good but I, maybe it's not my taste and someone could say you know what Ivan I don't really like the ramen you serve now that's to me is fine I mean, because I, guess what I'm, we all have different tastes have and different I think a lot of people in the food world kind of like make it like on a mountain on top of a mountain yelling down saying yeah. this is I mean better. of course I want everybody to tell me they love my food yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, important taste. to me but if they said I didn't, if they tell me your ramen's bad now, now we can step outside but like Mazamin versus Shoyu those are two very different flavor profiles those are also very different yeah. flavor profiles yeah. and and we do them all. And I think what we have on the menu right now is, you know, the python I love. That's the python is, you know, python being this uh, hard-cooked uh, chicken broth. And it's creamy and rich. And it to me, what I like about our python is it very much tastes like a tonkotsu. It, it hits a lot of those points. And yet it's a lot cleaner and brighter. And you don't feel quite as weighed down after you eat it. Um, it is richer than the shio. But chicken is just a killer like just stock. It we, is. Just, it as is. As Americans, I just feel we love chicken stock. Yes, and I agree with you. And I think that you know I've tried to come up with more uh, chicken and vegetarian items because that's that's what I think a lot of guests really would like. I mean, for you know, for every geeky tonkotsu person, when they actually sit down, they're like, oh, you have a chicken one. Oh, nice. Oh, you have a vegetarian one. Yeah, and it's really good. Try it. You know, and and it's even our spicy is based on our chicken dashi broth. So even though it's really rich, it still has a lighter thing going on so it's uh i guess to me my 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 my, if i had a a mantra mantra, i had a thing on the wall when you walk out of the restaurant you know it would say you know feeling better going out than you did coming in and that's my that's what i tell my staff workshopping this this could work yes on a a larger scale you know to me well you know it it came about this idea came about because i was my wife and i a long time ago i remember we both had some really delicious meal and many hours later, we kind of looked at each other and we both had this knowing smile. And I knew at that instant, we were both smiling about the meal we had eaten earlier. And and I was like, you know, that's what I want for my guests. I want a guy to, a couple to eat or whatever and have them three, four, five, seven hours later to still be kind of smiling to themselves. Boy, I really enjoyed that lunch. I felt so good. And maybe they went to a meeting afterwards and instead of nodding off, they're, they, they're just, you know, feel energized. And, and I want, I think, I feel like when you go to my restaurant, if you order a normal amount of, if you eat two bowls of ramen and six appetizers, you know, that's, that, that's not my business. But if you have a bowl and a snack and a, and a beer, you should feel good. 
And, and, and I want people to, you know, because I'm a chef and I think that chefs, you know, we're giving people sustenance. We're, you know, we're giving them uh, food that, that should make them feel really good. Not, That's a great goal. Yeah. Do you make it back to Japan quite a bit? I know that you don't have a restaurant there now, but you've got a lot of family there. I go as much as possible. Okay. I was, I went and, I went and this year, God, I went a lot. I was there in April. I was there in June and July. I was there in November. And now I'm heading back again in February. What, now, what what are you doing there then? What's... Uh, this summer, I actually did a, I did a, I did a, a web advertisement for CNN, which was super cool uh, about like uh, giving advice to eat at my favorite mm-hmm. uh, bars and, and restaurants. Oh, it was like a tour. tour yeah, thing. it's on my Instagram. There's still a link on there, uh, and uh, it's it's really cool. Um, but I don't, you know, to me. When I go to Japan, it's a business trip. Whether I go there to actually do something or if I'm just eating and catching up with people I know, it's I get re-energized when I'm there. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but when I was in my twenties, I went to see a uh, a person. What do you call a person who uh, uh, like a, a psychic? A, yeah, like yeah. A, I went to see a psychic. Yeah, and uh, she told me that four hundred years ago, I was a I was a samurai. But I was a wimpy samurai. I was a, like with a really rich parents, and I mostly stayed at home and did like artwork or something. It was hilarious. True story. <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. And um, and 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 I've recounted it many times how you know when I first came to Japan and the the plane landed in Narita, I had a visceral feeling that I was coming home. And and I have to tell you that I just I mean I, I I'm not a weird gaijin. I don't claim to be Japanese. I don't want to be you Japanese. You speak the language. You have children but, who are Japanese. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, I'm, but I'm... I agree. You but don't. I also have, there's something that I just, you know, when I feel sick, I eat rice porridge. When I'm happy, I eat, you know, sushi. When I'm, you know, all, even like last night we made dinner and, you know, we made this, uh, we, we, we braised uh, a Napa cabbage in, in kombu for like, you know, of, 45 minutes, it was, and we, we, we slurried it. It was freaking delicious. And, and I had made the Japanese-style hamburgers with grated daikon and, and you know, shiso. And, and I was just like, and everybody at the table was so happy. You know, my, my nine-year-old and my wife and I, and we were all just like, it was funny. But there's, there's something about Japan, and I just, I ache to go back. Um, I don't want to run away from New York. I mean, I love it here, and I and I'm very much an American, and I'm I love my country, and I'm enjoying being in New York very much. I've been, I mean, it sounds like a pretty great setup. Yeah, like to have, I mean, yeah. let's t- tell me this. I know Japan. Um, a lot of folks talk about to- Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, but I want to know where do you want to travel because it's kind of impossible to travel um, the whole country. I mean, there's lots of places I'm sure you want to go to. So tell me a few well, places. I'm terrible about traveling. I'm, yeah. I'm really a homebody. I mean, even in America, I mean, I'm going anywhere. And when I'm in Japan, I, I basically stay in my little, you know, area. And I, I've, I've always been like that. But, I mean, I've been to Kyoto many, many, many times. I, I love Kyoto. It's, uh, you know, it's everybody should go there. It, it's uh, it's super tourist friendly. So, you know, you don't need to speak Japanese. They, You know, everybody seems to at least understand a little bit of English. You know, all the businesses are set up for guests. It's a great place, but it's also, you know, beautiful temples, lots of traditional food, um, um, onsen not far away, 
Osaka is is a really unique, special place, and the people in Osaka are quite different from the people in in uh, Tokyo. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but their train stations are very Art Deco. It wasn't, you know, Osaka wasn't affected in the war, so they have all these beautiful old train stations. And uh, the street food in Osaka is just insane. Um, food's really, really good. How about there. heading more south? Are there other? I think I'm heading to Kyushu this next trip. Wow, uh, which is uh, is really nice, and go eat some, you know, the 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 home of uh, the land of tonkotsu, and uh, seafood is really great down there, and uh, really fun. It's a little slower, but you know, uh, it can be quite cosmopolitan down uh, in Fukuoka. So it's it's uh, it's a really fun. Place I think Fukuoka you think of is like the heart of ramen in Japan, right? It's like well, the heart of tonkotsu ramen. Tonkotsu ramen. Yeah, it, it's you know the 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 ramen in Tokyo is to me Tokyo is still the place where if you wanna be able to see all the different styles and see yeah, what people sure. are thinking about, then Tokyo might be this. Be- but you know, after the boom, you know, ramen started to really you know even in places where it had already been known. You know, like even like in Kyoto, where it's Kyoto's not known as a ramen place, but now there's all kinds of you know like ramen streets there, and there's a lot of activity going on in Kyoto and Osaka. So it's the, the ramen boom has affected the whole country. Yeah, it's amazing. Let's pivot to another topic you hold dear to your to your heart, which is pizza. Right. Uh, you own a pizza shop. I do. Called the Corner Slice. Yep. Dope pizza, man. Thank you. Dope pizza. I love it. I've been many times. It's in Gotham Market where the slurp shop is. So tell is this is this something you want to do a lot of or is it just is this scratching an itch for you? Because it sounds like ramen is still well, I don't want to do anything that I don't do a lot of. All right. Because I'm a Fair. I'm a business guy. Fair enough. I think, you know, it's uh, and I think the corner slice is it's really great because we've we've tried to keep the prices down and not yeah. have it be one of these sort of foo-foo, you know, fancy-ass places where a slice of pizza costs 6 or $7. We tr- really tried to keep it because, well, the whole, the whole idea of the corner slice, first of all, that blue bottle space was opening up and the landlord was like, you know, it'd be great if you could do something in there. So we, we got us sort of thinking. and You landed on pizza right away. Well, you know, my, my former uh, chef from Ivan Ramen and, and Slurp Shop – uh, he left after the first year, you know, after we got our review and, you know, he wanted to do other things and he left. But we, we were very close and we stayed in, in touch with him. Um, and uh, so we reached out to him and said, what do you think, you know, about that space? And, you know, he said, well, I've been doing a lot of stuff with pizza lately. And, and we all talked about it. And all of us were really have lamented the, the disappearance of the slice. And it's so funny because it's moved so fast. A lot of the stuff that's happening now we thought of so long ago. But we're in. We're stuck in a in a in a market where we don't get quite the street cred of having your own, you know, four walls. Um, so it's been a little bit harder to uh, to you know project your personality when you're sharing a space in a food hall. Uh, not but, making excuses. But what's your but, style? Because I I think it has a unique style that you that you've really landed on. Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a hodgepodge of a lot of different of different techniques and things. But it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a forty eight hour uh, uh, cold fermented dough. Uh, we make our own mozzarella. We make, you know, we blend tomatoes. We make our own sausages. We make, you know, we make all our own pastry. We make our own bread for the sandwiches. We do, you know, it's really a bakery. At the end of the day, it's it's it's. I mean, it's a pizza place, but we're a bakery and we can bake anything. And using bread ovens. And using well, we use a, we use a deck oven. Deck oven. Okay. We use a deck oven. We use a really good. We did a lot of research. We got this really badass pizza master uh, deck oven that everybody's starting to you know realize is great because it, it can heat really high. You don't. We don't need it to be at nine hundred and fifty degrees, but it goes to nine hundred and fifty right. degrees, and it holds its temp really well. So it's a beautiful oven, and and uh, 
We just really, you know, we did a grandma slice. It's it's business wise. Grandma slices are really that's nice my and... that's my jam. I always think it's not far from our office. If you haven't noticed, and we, I, I walk over there sometimes and grab a grandma slice because you know got to have one in the afternoon. It's so good. It's so good. But it's great. I mean, I, I love seeing all the great pizza places opening up around yeah. the city because it's, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you could gr- grab a slice, you know, practically on every freaking street corner. And then it just disappeared. And then there was the do- the, the, the scourge of the dollar slice came. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, I had a slice at the dollar. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's just not pizza. Just so you know, it's not pizza. It's yeah. like, uh, don't, it's not real food. They use the absolute base. I mean, who knows if the FDA would even allow this stuff if they yeah. paid attention and and you know we use you know organic flour that's freshly milled in the Hudson Valley and it's you know where we we really just try to make because you know pizza got pizza is a great food cost item right so if you use bleached white flour and you use commodity mozzarella 10 cents a slice yeah I mean it's really cheap and then you can still charge two to four dollars a slice but it's crap. I mean, yeah. and, and, and like I said, once again, I'm not naming names. I'm not saying anything. I'm not, yeah. I mean, you people will do what they do. You're diplomatic. I mean, the dollar slice came up in in my in my feed last week. Um, there was something written about the dollar slice. You, you can't go there, but I feel like the dollar slice fairly is how people eat in New York. It's a fucking expensive city. Yeah. So yeah. that's fair. I think that's, that, that's fair. That's the that's the other side of the coin. But I agree. Uh, although I will tell you that I have. There's been many points in my life where I was not a flush and where I did not have very much money, and I always made a PB and J. It was always in my bag with an apple, and so you know I've I've always chosen to eat food I make or eat something good. Completely I've, I've, fair. I mean, I I gave up. Uh, I gave up fast food when I was 17, and my friends were on a Taco Bell just like they were every single day. They would come, you know, come to the party house wherever we were hanging, and they would bring giant bags of Taco Bell. And I just said, "Gunug." <laughs> I want to no talk more. No more. And I want to uh, talk about your your books because first off, your your book Ivan Ramen from Ten Speed. If, if listener, pick it up. It's a great read. Um, it's a book. I mean, it's your story. The first 75 pages is your story. Now, so tell me that book, is there a second part to it? I know that you're working on another book project, right? Yeah, it's coming out, With, it's coming out in the fall. So it's coming out in the fall. But yep. first, back to the Ivan Raman book. Tell us, like, has has that book set well with you? Are, are you happy with it? Do you want to do more about your story? <laughs> God God, I mean, I you know, I get to the point with this this story. When when are people going to be tired of it and just say I don't want to hear it anymore? Great story, I though. I keep, I keep telling it, and sometimes I feel bad. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm so sorry. It's I'm inspirational, happy. though. Yeah. To be honest, it's inspirational. It makes people feel good. It makes people want to work hard. It makes people want to, you know, get over loss. I mean, right. it's really and it helps people get through. It's a lot of. I don't want to spoil anything because you should definitely pick it up. Well, well, I mean, listen, I'm I. If you can't tell, I have a very strong opinion about just about everything, and uh, I'm a big reader, so I've read you know many, many, and I've read you know thousands and thousands of books in my life, and I, I have 500 cookbooks at home. I've read a lot of cookbooks, and so I had a real clear idea about what I wanted this cookbook to do and to say. I mean, I, since I've done Netflix, I mean, I've heard a few people complain, well, it's just, you know, the Netflix show is written. But I was like, yeah, well, the book came first. And it's not my fault that, you know, that that's where the Netflix went in that direction. So it is very similar. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, we wanted to tell the story. And, and then I wanted to write, you know, 
so you have to picture this. I decided to open a ramen shop in Tokyo. This is 2006 when, I mean, things have changed a little bit in Tokyo now. Now you can convince someone to let you come into the kitchen for a week and they'll teach you. Or I see, I see, I see foreigners in ramen shops now. But when I started, there, no, almost none of that existed. It was very rare. It existed, but it was rare. And I had already been cooking for 15 years or so. And I didn't really want to go to work in a ramen shop for a year or two to before I was really taught anything. And I didn't, I didn't want to be disrespectful and ask to be taught how to make ramen in two or three weeks. So I was, you know, I just decided, you know what, man, I'm, I, just, I don't have the balls to ask someone to teach me in, in a short period of time. And I'm not interested in doing another apprenticeship because I already did one. And so I ended up going home and just, you know, I, 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 did, I went to the Yamato ramen school for six days, uh, which... Uh, what did that cost? It was 2,500 bucks, I think. Yeah, now I think it's five or six, but it, you know, but you know what? It was and it was taught by non cooks uh, who had been trained to sort of help you. You know, f- originally, apparently, the Yamato uh, president told me that he started selling these noodle machines, and he did very well selling lots of them. But the the failure rate was really high, and he was very distressed that someone many of his customers were going out of business. So he decided he would open the school and he would help people to sort of get a more of a, a grounding on on what style they really want and how to make their ramen better. Um, for me, it was cool. So they didn't really. You know, it was called a ramen school, but it was six days. When people tell me, oh, I'm going to go to this ramen school and in six days I'm going to learn how to make ramen. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's impossible. I mean, because you, it takes more than six days to learn how to cook, you know. And I went there with a lot of experience and it was a great affirmation for me about what I knew and didn't know. And it helped me to think through those things. And it demystified a few things because, you know, for a Western trained chef like myself, I'm a classically trained cook. You know, we're taught to clean up our soup. And in ramen, you're turned to, I mean, in simplistic terms, you're taught to dirty your soup. So, you know, uh, you know, you're, you spend all these years trying to make this thing pristine. And now all of a sudden you're doing this, you're doing it sort cloudy. of, it's cloudy, cloudy or, the or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or you're add, it, it's just a different thought yeah. process. So it was a little complex to get my head around. And I still have to say, after all these years, ramen is still one of the hardest things to make. And even if I make a bowl that's, you'll, you might say, oh my God, that's just perfect. When I try to make the next one, it takes takes just as much energy. I've never really found that now that I know how to make ramen, I just when I yeah. want to make one, I just you know in five minutes I make a perfect bowl. It's it's no. it takes well, semi famously. This book has about a sixty page recipe for ramen. Yeah, I mean, that's which I think is a. But I dreamed of the book. So when yeah. I was opening this ramen shop, I dreamed of a book that would tell me how to make ramen. But you know, and even though I'm my I'm my reading of Japanese isn't bad. And I read lots of Japanese books. No one real still. They always stop short of telling you the secret ingredient. Or once you read through it carefully, you'd realize there's something missing. And so it was very. And then when you would ask a, a ramen guy, "Hey, how do you do something?" They would they wouldn't answer, or they would they would be like, "Well." And so it was really awkward. And I just said, "You know what, man? Fuck it. I'm just going to learn to do this on my own." And I just sat in my little kitchen in Tokyo until I got it right. And you see that book in ramen shops around the world. I've seen that book, your book, just well, on the shelf. Well, you know, man. I like I said, it's I great. am I am not a. I love competition. I love the brotherhood and the sisterhood of cooking. I love working with other people. I, I would never claim to know more than anybody else. And I, and I always make sure people know that the way I feel is that I am an expert of ramen, but I'm only an expert of Ivan ramen. So if you want to argue with me about Ivan ramen, I'm 
perfectly happy to stand toe-to-toe and argue, you know, but I would never claim to know anything past what I do, and I'm constantly learning and constantly trying to be better and, and trying to just, you know, and I love that, that people, I love that ramen is expanding. It's great. It's Because it's, it's, I also love Japan, and I always saw this ramen thing, especially when I returned to the United States, that I'm always, I would always be disappointed. I'd meet some really well-educated, well-traveled person, and they would say, you know, my dream is to go to Japan someday. It's on my bucket list. And I'd be like, dude, really? And that's like, and if I'd said to you, my my bucket list is going to Paris, but I'm but I'm like, and I'm but I'm not like a I'm not a poor person. I'm a normal person. You'd be like, well, just go. And I look at these people. I'm like, just go. Like, what's I don't understand it. Most so magical place to visit and it listener. Is, it's easy to get around. It's it easy to easy. get easy. It's not always been that way, but I went. I've been a few times in the past ten, five years. I went also eighteen years ago, and it's dramatically dis- different, right? I mean, lots more English, way less more English. signs, and I, I give people lots of advice. Google I'll, I'll Maps works yeah. really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you my. I'll give you my tourist advice. Here's my <laughs> tourist advice: If you're going to go to Tokyo, number one, if you're going to spend money on a hotel, make sure you spend enough so that you can have a good concierge. And then whether it's one month away or nine months away, start getting on that concierge right away. Tell them what you can and can't eat. Tell them where you'd like to go. If you see Sugita, Saito-san, whatever, yeah. so, you know, I want to go to a great sushi place. What place can you get me into? Because the, the concierge will line up reservations. That's their job. And it'll make your life a lot easier. They'll even put you in a cab with a note for the taxi driver. It's a magical They'll... experience to have a great concierge. On the flip side, I'll say my experience last year was just Airbnb, man. I got like a $110 Airbnb near your yeah. Yogi Park. And it I, was I had one. I, had, I did too. Suit. And you get your little Wi-Fi guy, so you oh, can throw it in your bag, right? And you got full exactly. Wi-Fi going on. It was 110 a night. It was so yeah. great. And, yeah. and there's a lot of – it's a university area around Yogi, And I just yeah. – I was like – well, you can go either way. But both right. are pretty great. And then I tell people, go to ramenadventures.com, right? Brian McDuxton's uh, ramen, ramen website. The dude is just awesome, and he know, he just all he does is write about great places to go to. And now he writes about all over Japan. It used to be just Tokyo, but now he's been traveling a lot. So he talks about all kinds of really cool places, the, the Eater 38. Essential. It's getting a little bit old now, a little long in the tooth. It came out, I think, three years ago. But but I, that's got some good ideas. You know, Robbie Swinnerton from Japan yeah, Times. Great. Yep. He's he's always writing about great places. So you can Google Japan Times and check out their food uh, their food file, Robbie Swinnerton's food file. So there's a lot of ways. Like I said, when I moved back to Japan in 2003, there was nothing. I had to read everything in Japanese. There was almost nothing written about where to eat or what to do, and now it's just it's insane. Let's hear a little bit about the book coming out in the fall. You're working with Chris Yang, formerly working of Lucky with Chris Peach. Yang. He's my he's, he's been my co-author. We're we're real pals. We get along great, and both of us have a real. We're both we're both super detail oriented. We're super hard workers, and we both do what we say and say what we do. So it's you know, which believe it or not is uh, can be very rare. Kind of rare, yeah. yeah actually, so, uh, like following through. It's called follow through, Ivan. Yeah, I, I, I get frustrated. <laughs> it's. Sometimes and and my brain sometimes I'm like I don't know you said you were going to do it why didn't you yeah. do it I don't understand you know yeah. I, I almost never say I'm going to do something if I don't can't do it it's uh, so um, what's the book about tell well, us also about the it. book it's called the Gaijin Cookbook. Oh, um, cool. Which I guess is a little bit co- – every once in a while I get hit with, wow, that's controversial. I'm like, what? Well, because in Japan, you know, up until you know not that long ago, some guy could just look at you and go, oh, gaijin. And, it's and pejorative. It's, it it has is. It's, it's subtext there. It, it's, I don't think it's as bad as some of the other bad words we could think about. But, but you know, I think that – it has a negative connotation, but I actually had my friend visiting from Tokyo right now. So we were, she said, wow, that's gaijin. That's tough. That's, you know, and, and I said to her, I go, look, you know, 
I'm a gaijin. It's and you are, highly specific. Yeah, you have to know that people still to this day. I mean, I mean people that that have been living in New York, Japanese people living here for 25 years, and they give me the same shit. They're like, it's so amazing what you've been able to do with the Japanese culture, and that you can that your palate's so good. And I'd be like, you know, go fuck yourself. You've been living here for 25. How about you? Ooh, it's so cool that you're a New Yorker. Like, how do you? Can you ride the subway when you eat a pretzel? How do you? How do you get it into your mouth? It must be very hard for you. What do you and then and then they get really insulted, and they're like, well, what are you saying to me? And I was like, the same shit you're saying to me. You know, if, if you know, expats almost always know more than than the people that live in the country because you're because we're passionate about the country we're visiting. So you know, you meet a expat in New York, and they'll know like all about the governors going back 200 years or something. And you'll be like, why do you know that? And they'll be like, oh, I just love New York. I it's so love interesting. It. I yeah, have a passion for it. And so I'm that way. This book is going to be about uh, Japanese homestyle cooking. Uh, it, it, it's it's going to be super fun. Uh, basically, it's the way I cook at home. Mm-hmm. Well, as you um, just said, the dashi and the cabbage and the yeah, hamburger. Exactly. I love that right. shit, and, man. And it's just, it's so good. Um, I really made the recipes dead simple. No bullshit. And I wasn't trying to be a dick when I wrote the Ivan Ramen recipes, by the way. It was just that I wanted to say, this is my Shio Ramen recipe. This is exactly how I make it in the restaurant, except instead of 100 portions, it's four. And so I didn't do it to make any kind of statement. I didn't do it to be a jerk. I didn't. I just said, you know, this is the book that I dreamed of being presented with when I wanted to open my ramen shop. So I wanted to offer a book with the recipes that really work, that that peel back that that you know, mystery that all these ramen chefs, you know. I said to my, I have a very good friend of mine who's who at one point was probably one of the most fam- famous ramen shop owners in Japan. And I said to him, I go, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about how they make their ramen. Like, why won't they tell tell me? And he goes, because they don't know dick. <laughs> it's all winging it. They're all winging it. They know <laughs> they know how to do one thing really yeah. well, and they don't know anything else. So I mean, that's yeah. that, that's I didn't say that. That's he. That's I what he told it. me. But uh, so these are recipes that. Um, I cook at home. My wife and I cook together a lot. You know, she'll say, I feel like eating, you know, cabbage with dashi in it. And I'll be like, well, tell me, like, tell me, like, how I should make it. And she'll be like, well, I'll get the cabbage and cut it up like, no, like, cut it like this. That's too big. Cut it smaller. I'll be like, okay. And, and, and over the years, we had this whole rapport. We're really fun. We'd, we'd, my wife and I, we just, we're, we're glued to the hip. We do everything together. Yeah, we take it. Pilates together. Follow we, it on Instagram, we, man. Yeah, Your wife's always up to yeah, stories. She, I love it. She's, she's, she's you know, amazing. she and I are tight. And, no, it's uh, great. And so we had a lot of fun uh, doing all these recipes. I, I, I rewrote every single recipe myself. I tested every recipe myself. And then Chris tested the recipes. So they work. What's the recipe that's in your head right now that's going to be a big one? You know, right now we're thinking of books in terms of like viral recipes. What is the one that will be viral? Because I know there will be one. I'm sure there will be. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. You know, we have a bunch of good hot pots in there, uh, which is super fun. Yeah, Yeah, the nabes that are, I think, I would love for people to, you know, just go go out and buy themselves a, a gas Conroe, what do you say in English? A, a, a gas, you know, a, a tabletop yeah, gas think, burner. For, for and, Korean barbecue too. Yeah, shout out. Yeah. If you have a if you have a gas burner and you go, I mean, you know, the the, the nabes, you know, they can be, you know, a couple of hundred bucks, but they, you can also go to the H Mart and buy one for twenty. On Thirty Second Street, there's a yeah. whole section. There are about twenty bucks. Yeah, you and and yeah. you know, Korean food and Japanese food are very different, and yet there's a lot of similarities. And so, like, you know, my my go to place is H Mart. I shop there all the time, and they have a lot of wonderful ingredients. And, and it's uh, and you can you can get stuff there, and they sell lots of Japanese ingredients as well. But uh, the nabe in the winter 
it's so fun to sit. Everybody sits around the the pot and it, and it bubbles and you add stuff and you pull it out and you add more stuff in and it's uh it's very communal and it's very heartwarming and it's uh it's it's a really nice thing to. Buddy, to I can't do. wait to cook from it. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a good book. Ivan Orkin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Here's Matt playing the game F. Mary Kill with Deb Perlman. Deb, I have a question for you. There's this fun schoolyard game called F. Mary Kill. You can Google <laughs> it if you want the full name, but we're going to call it F. Mary Kill. Let's play that game. Okay. F. Mary Kill, Deb. Grilled cheese, corned beef, PB&J. Definitely marry peanut butter and jelly and do not marry anybody who does not appreciate peanut butter and jelly. This is very important. I don't want anyone judging my peanut butter and jelly on store-bought bread. Thank you very much. Um, I guess corned beef? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's a solid. This is a staple. This is like the stability you need in your life. And um, I could just do without grilled cheese. I know. It's like a really unpopular opinion. I just find it very – I like cheese that's melted. I like butter, fried bread – you know, I like all of those things together. It just feels like so oily and heavy to me. Yeah. I know. God, I, I'm, I know I'm, I'm sure I'm just making it wrong and it's me, but I usually personally need some vegetables in there or something uh-huh. to make it more interesting, which I understand completely defeats the purpose of eating fried bread with a piece of cheese in the middle. I like that. So we're effing F- F- PBJ, we're marrying corned beef, and we're killing grilled cheese. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's fine. I don't need to ever have grilled cheese again. Yeah, life. I'm with you. Thanks a lot, Deb. <laughs> The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>